Welcome to The Discourse. In this episode, members of the Wayne State University Civil Discourse Fellowship talk about differences in how our communities appear from the inside and outside, and misconceptions that may exist from the external viewpoint. Enjoy! Hi everyone, I'm Rima, and um, we have Zakia, Isaac, Eric, and Bilal, and we're um, part of the group called The Discourse, and this is our podcast. Um, this week we're talking about misconceptions people have about faith, whether it can be outside or outside misconceptions, so people who are not part of that faith, or um, people, um, the misconceptions people have within their faith as well. So, for example, um, with Christianity, everyone, or at least I know a lot of people think Jesus was a white guy. No, he was Palestinian. And where is Palestine? The Middle East. Um, some inside misconceptions. Um, uh, let's say a lot of people like focus on wealth, especially like in America, like more of a puritanical, puritanical view. And a lot of the teachings of Jesus are actually based off of like, we should be caring about our fellow neighbors. So I'm going to pass it off to Eric. And we'll get the discussion, just to hear everyone's background. Eric? So, uh, thank you, Rima. Um, I do not have a particular religious, or I I do have a religious background in general Protestant Christianity. Um, The church that I used to go to consider themselves non-denominational, but that's kind of impossible. um, in like a practical sense, because you have to believe something doctrinally, and that's going to fit in with somebody. Um, so you can't just like be like a non-denominational Christian necessarily. If you're a church, as a personal choice, that's fair. You know, believe the Bible, Jesus, whatever. But as an institution, you can't really be non-denominational because you're gonna you're gonna spout something, and that's gonna align with somebody else. So. Um, but personally, I came from a non-denominational Protestant background. So you believe the general things that Protestant Christians believe, which is you don't really believe in the power of the Pope. You don't believe in the legitimacy of the Catholic Church and you cultivate a personal relationship with God above all else. That's, you take the Bible more literally. So that's what I grew up with. Um, now I consider myself an uh, agnostic atheist. And I think that uh, atheism itself is atheism and Gnosticism, agnosticism, is kind of, it's fuzzy um, because there are a lot of different definitions of it. And I think that while institutions can make atheism or Gnosticism fit their agenda or ideology, whatever, whatever agenda that may be, um, I, the ideas themselves are kind of just descriptors as opposed to religions or belief system in of itself. For instance, um, theism and atheism are interlinked because theism is uh, belief in a God or gods um, and atheism is just not belief in a God or gods. Um, And Gnosticism and agnosticism um, add and subtract from that because Gnosticism itself just means knowledge. So uh, an agnostic atheist 
doesn't believe in God or gods, but since they're agnostic, they don't know if there's a way to know. So it's like, I believe, I don't believe that they're there, but I can't prove it. And I'm not going to act like I can. Uh, I don't think anybody can. So that's what an agnostic atheist would say. A Gnostic atheist would say, I don't believe in God. And I know that there isn't God based on what I've seen in life, based on what I know. Um, like an agnostic theist would say, and you know, a theist could be anybody who believes in any kind of deity, not just um, a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, an agnostic theist would be like, you know, I believe there are gods out there. I believe there is a higher being. Um, but since they're agnostic, I don't know what they look like. I don't know what they do. I don't know what they want. I don't know how many of them there are. I don't know anything about them. I just think that they're there. Um, a Gnostic theist would say, you know, I know there's a God up there. Not only do I believe it, I know it, and here's how I know. And a lot of the major religions fall under that, that category. Now, obviously, they, they differentiate in, like, the rules, the teachings, the specific scriptures and stuff. But Gnostic theism is the norm. Um, it's believing in a God and believing that you, you know that they're up there. And I think that those four descriptive terms are kind of thrown around sometimes as like an insult or um, as being part of some organization when it's really not. It's just, it's just a descriptor of how you see the spiritual world or if you, if you, if you believe in it at all. Um, actually, that's funny because being an atheist doesn't even necessarily mean you don't believe in the spiritual world. Like you can not believe in a God or gods but still think that spirit and ghosts exist. So it's, it's, it's a lot more fluid than people get it, give it credit for. Um, so yeah, I, that's, that's uh, my two cents. I'll pass it off to uh, Zakia. So I thought that was really interesting what you said about um, agnosticism. Um, and I guess I hadn't really thought of it that way. I know Judaism is actually pretty open to being a theist and an agnostic uh, person. Um, being that actually like in our 13 principles of faith, like it clearly states, we don't know what God looks like. Um, we don't really know his purpose. We know that Moses was like our main prophet, but we don't, we believe, you know, the Torah was written by God, but we don't know God. God does not smell. He does not look like anything. And I feel like a lot of that sort of questioning or, um, sort of different ideas about what God is, is sort of baked into our religion. And I also feel like to struggle with God is inherently Jewish. I mean, that's where like the word like Yisrael comes from is to have that sort of struggling or fighting with God or angels. And so in that sense, I find Judaism to be really liberating um, because you are allowed to have those, those struggles, those questions, those ideas. Um, so I find that very helpful, but I feel like if we're going to talk about this sort of ties really nicely into inside versus outside ideas of faith. Um, and for me, I mean, on the outside and at least on some surface levels on the inside, it's very, um, Judaism can be very strict and very rigid and very unaccepting of these kind of core beliefs or, or unaccepting of some people's interpretation of Jewish law. And sometimes I feel like over time we've become stricter, not more lenient. And I think some of it is out of acts of desperate self-preservation and as a safeguard against assimilation. So if we look at how 
our ancestors would have practiced 50, 100, 200 years ago, they actually might have been more liberal. In fact, in a lot of cases, they probably were. And so I guess a problem that I seem to have, um, especially with like Ashkenazi um, leaders, is that I feel like there is this inherent um, exposure to early Christian and Western ideas where self-deprivation and self-denial is akin to holiness and divinity. And I feel like I do see that sort of translated in Ashkenazi um, literature and halachic like law rulings, um, which I don't actually really agree with. I feel like we have become a lot stricter over time, even if when you're kind of in the religion and you can kind of have your own personal rabbi and have like learning groups where you can talk candidly amongst each other. I mean, I feel like that's a little bit more exposed that the core of our religion isn't meant to be so rigid. Um, whereas the outside and definitely some surface levels of Judaism are very rigid. And I feel like almost to the point where they sort of um, forget the point, forget that they're there to be servants of God, to be, um, there to serve God, I feel like it really does kind of fall into this competition of self-deprivation and how strict can we be? And like I said, some of it is a safeguard against assimilation. So that's sort of my view on the inside out of at least Judaism. Um, I guess maybe specifically the orthodoxy um, and Ashkenormative orthodoxy at that. Um, so I think I'll hand it off to Isaac because he might disagree with me. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, you have excellent insights. Um, I just want to start start from scratch with my own opinion on the entire misconceptions question. So the Jewish community is very diverse. And even within subgroups, there's diversity of opinion, practice, all that stuff. And so it's kind of true that whatever your conception is, it will be true of some Jews. The problem is when you make it into some general principle and you start prejudging people, assuming that they fit into this category already. So I'm, I'm gonna give some, some sort of completely diametrically opposed examples. And these are real people you will find but you should not think that I'm one of them, right? So here's one, um, a common misconception. Uh, Jews don't really believe in God. Their synagogues are really more focused on um, liberal political stuff, uh, sort of social justice, LGBT rights. That's the main focus of Jews. Such synagogues do exist in America. They, they, there are, there are a lot of people who consider that their Judaism. Nonetheless, not me. And then here's another misconception, which is partially true, but still a misconception. Um, Jews are, uh, they take their devotion to God so seriously that they cut themselves off from external society. Uh, no, never interact with the outside world, don't speak the language of the countries they live in, uh, don't watch TV, use the internet, 
uh, read newspapers outside of their own publications um, because they don't want to be corrupted by the secular society. Again, that exists in the United States. So if that's your conception, I can't quite say that it's a misconception, but on the other hand, for a lot of, if, if, if you are trying, trying to imagine that that's most people in the Jewish community, it is a misconception. So it's a, it's a nuanced thing. And uh, it's, it's difficult for me to say straight up, you're wrong, Jews aren't like that because there are going to be Jews who are like that, whatever, you're, whatever it is that your misconception is. But all the same, uh, prejudgment is prejudice. So wait to, wait to find out from who you're talking to where they're coming from. Um, I, one thing I, I, did, I did think of though is also that there are historical uh, facts which there are misconceptions on, which are like it, it, it's, it, there is really only one uh, reality to it. And I, I hate, hate to, to go here, but because this was brought up, um, this person um, known as Jesus was one of us. Um, many of his followers were not, but he was. And in the time and place that he lived, um, he was in, under Roman occupation in Judea, which before the Roman occupation was known as the kingdom of Judah. And the, the, the period where it was renamed to Syria, Palestina was some hundred years after his death. Um, it would be an anachronism to refer to any of the Jews in that region at that time as anything other than Jews or Judeans. That's my opening statement. And all that's left is to hear from Bilal. Okay, hi. So, um, I'm not sure if, uh, although I, I, get, I get like uh, that, you know, some sources may say that it was like formerly Palestine or it was formerly such and such. Um, it doesn't actually change the main point of it being that, that uh, specifying the region, as far as I'm aware, but it, but clarify that after I share it. Hopefully, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, w would you refer to um, Sitting Bull as an American? No, I wouldn't, because, but I would say that, like, in a historical context, it's like, for example, um, I think I was reading about Lord Wellington in in a book the other day. Other day, and the person decided to say, it's just to be clear, though, he wasn't. You know, they're talking about in his childhood, right? He wasn't called Lord Wellington in his childhood. And they referred to him what he was referred to, you know, when he was a kid. Um, so I, I wasn't sure if... Uh, so it, regionally speaking, though, are they the same area? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, I'd like to make a small interjection on that. Um, so... When the Romans conquered, they named the area Palestine. That is not its historical name at all whatsoever. Well, well no, they, they, but again, they, they, that was in like 135 CE, they renamed it. But during the time that Jesus was alive, the Romans had called, already conquered. It was a Roman right. province, but the Romans called it Judea. 
Yeah. Right. Okay. Even when they renamed it, it was specifically renamed as kind of like an F you to the Jews. Like we conquered you. Ha ha. We're going to name your land after the people that you hate. Um, and so, and I feel like using that is sort of like, um, it's very politically charged at the moment. And as far as I'm aware, there really aren't Jewish Palestinians. So I feel like it does take away from Jesus's Palestine or Jewish identity. Or, or, or uh, depending on how you view it, uh, all Jews are Palestinians. Well, I reject that, and I think every Jew would. Okay. So. Well, I, I actually no, I, I, I'm, I'm in favor of. We, we can let the law talk. <laughs> okay, so um, misconceptions. So I think similarly, in the same kind of vein, thought that Isaac brought forward was. Islam is not monolithic, and Muslims are not monolithic, and as such, it does help to actually treat people as individuals and allow them to express their views as opposed to prejudging them. And are there people who you genuinely don't want to cross the street if they're there, or you maybe you would want to cross the street if they're there? Muslims? Yes, there are. Are Muslims who I would say to you that like they are gentle people, but ideologically they are more dangerous than than wolves. So there are also other people who um, are so I would say watered down that it's more of a cultural practice than any sort of ideology in any direction. Um, so yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, if a person, you know, there are there people who genuinely, genuinely, with all of their heart, believe that people outside of the Muslim faith, Muslims who believe that people outside the Muslim faith will be in heaven. Yes, there are. There absolutely are. Are there also Muslims who believe that nobody, nobody after the time of uh, the Prophet Muhammad having spread the message of Islam uh, throughout, you know, the Arabic world and then through the, you know, Rome and Persia. After that message has been out, like everyone is officially considered liable if they do not join Islam. And also, if they do not join Islam, they have no opportunity to go to heaven whatsoever. Like they're done. Like that's it. Doesn't matter the kind of lifestyle you live. Doesn't matter if you're in good faith striving your whole life to look for what makes the most sense, you know, because, anyway, um, there are people who do hold that view, and they even go so far as to, you know, going further that, down that line to dehumanize people, and not, you know, obviously they wouldn't say this literally, they wouldn't say, oh, they're not humans, but in the way that they feel that they should be treated, they dehumanize them, um, and like, like, you know, and their expectations. And I'm not talking about like, okay, oh, they, you know, they have expectation that they should be taxed um, and they're not allowed to join the army. It's like, okay, that that's, you know, like that's something, but that's not the same thing as dehumanizing. But there is people who would do that for the sake of dehumanizing. It, it's not a matter of like politically there's distrust among groups or anything like that. So like, this is like a, like a defense mechanism or like a, like a security, like a Homeland Security kind of thing. No, some people would use it like, this is our way of enforcing it on them uh, because they're inferior currently in their mindset and they have to come to understand this. And 
um, that range is pretty, pretty far, you know, one people are saying, you know, like straight up, I think that, I think I'll see you in heaven. And other people are saying that like you, you, I'm certain with utter certainty, you'll be in hell, <laughs> which is pretty, you know, I think those are quite literally, you know, as offset as you can get. Um, and there are also Muslims out there who, and there are, uh, I, I think that, I mean, I can't say, um, based off my anecdotal experience, you know, what the whole population is like. But I know that if you were to look at things like through a spectrum of the, uh, theistic probability, um, and, uh, you know, this is this is a term that comes from uh, a book written by Richard Dawkins, um, but just basically that, like, how strongly do people hold a view? And that doesn't have, it, it kind of correlates with uh, agnosticism because it's like, um, kind of, but it's not the exact same thing because agnosticism is really about believing that the knowledge for something exists or or lack thereof right like if you're agnostic you believe that it's possible to know and then if you're agnostic it's not truly possible to know like ultimately um so so in that you know some muslims believe that you should be like 100 percent fully believing theistically and then others believe that you you wrestle with the idea like it's a, it's, it's a person, like it's a, it's a process. You have to be genuine with yourself. Like, like if you are not fully convinced of something, right? Like, let's say, let's say, you know, there's 10 ideas on the table and each of them are at 60% of what you're convinced for each of these ideas. And someone tells you, Hey, if you don't believe in this idea, you're going to hell. That is not a logical conclusion. Like, so someone would say, no, it makes perfectly good sense for a person to be um, questioning the belief or even leave the belief for a period of time, and that's perfectly fine. Other people would take the extreme end and they'd say, if a person leaves the faith, and these people do exist, and you know, you'll find them in like uh, uh, small pockets of Iraq, right? You know, even today, it's called a very famous group known as ISIS, um, that, you know, oh, you left the religion? Well, that makes your blood halal which is a really disgusting phrase to even think about because what it means is what that means is basically saying killing you is not considered a sin because you left a religion and it's like you know clearly you, you, you i mean i mean maybe maybe just myself but it makes you weep for the youth in that area who you know that it's going to happen to them they're going to be brainwashed into this they're going to be radicalized into becoming innocent from innocent you know, children, and I know, I know some children are not that innocent, but innocent children to demonic people. And uh, so these, these extremely, you know, varying ranges um, exist. And while Islam, relatively speaking to, you know, because there have been many Christian movements in the U.S. and North America and in Europe, um, it, relatively speaking, is a lot more rigid there is a lot of room for, you know, intellectual display and learning and questioning things. And, you know, I really think that the Muslims don't reflect upon the fact that there have been dozens of intellectual movements that have reshaped the religion, or at least how we interpret it or view it, and that we just forget about it. And it's like, no, there's only one way to look at things. Like, well, you know what? 200 years ago, people said that, and then there was an intellectual reform People change their mind on something and then suddenly that's canon so it's like if that happens every 200 400 600 years right 
And sometimes it's like this, it's like, you know, 200 years pass and one view is dominant and then and the view changes and then it goes to a previous uh, view from like 400 years ago. So they say like, oh, I think that's more correct, right? Then how can you be so rigid and also unforgiving? And, and, and I think that's uh, you going mildly unforgiving with when people are questioning their faith. You know, like it's uh, it's a really, a person who questions their faith in genuine honesty, who, who debates and argues for the sake of God, um, it, I, I don't see that as anything but like one of the purest things a person can do. I, I genuinely believe that an atheist who is fully convinced in atheism, who practices life as an atheist, who is doing things in good faith and genuinely trying to follow things as, as correct as he possibly can, like he's genuinely saying like, you know, if this was 80, if I was 80% convinced of Islam, I would take it. But I'm only at 40%. And as a result, I'm not saying it's completely wrong, but like, I'm not convinced. And if he's genuine with that, and he doesn't come to Islam, and he follows what he thinks is genuinely good, I, as far as like my full belief and with full confidence, I believe God will put him into the shade of, 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 of Jannah, sorry, the shade of, of heaven, um, when, he, when he dies, when, when he's to be judged. Like, and I, I don't see how anyone can possibly think that a person in good faith and trying to seek the truth could be damned to hell. Uh, I, I had a, a small question, uh, and I, I should also say that I, I, that is that is beautiful, and the, the same goes for me. My my understanding of Jewish law is, and is, theology is very similar in that. But I may have had a misconception. Um, my reaction to your comment about uh, blood being halal, um, I, to me, halal carried a connotation of permissible for consumption. Is that, a, is that a misconception? It just means permissible in general? Yeah, that's right. Haram and halal are general. It can be used um, like, you know, similar to kosher when you're referring to dietary, and then there's that means there's a lot overlapping. That does not mean that they're same, but that would only be in the cases of dietary. So that's correct. Okay. So, so it's more analogous to the Hebrew mutar. Permitted. Thank you. You taught me something there. Thank you. <laughs> Rima, did you want to uh, add something else based on everything that we put we put in, or did you want to just pass it off? Um, you can go ahead, Eric, if you have something to say. All right, um, for the, the audience out there, I have been looking at my phone this entire time because I've been taking notes on everybody, everybody's saying so I can respond to it in detail without having to hold space in my brain. Um, that usually doesn't go very well. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Zakia, feeling like Ashkenazim are making more rigid than it needs to be. Basically what I wrote in my notes is a summary of part of what you said. That's interesting you say that, because, um, and you also pointed out the, the separations within the groups, like how I know um, the term Ashkenazim, you know, usually is, is meant to like say like European descended Jews, but the term itself means like German Jews. And um, Ashkenazim in general, uh, it tends to be applied toward what so-called West Juden and like Ost Juden, the same way like Western Jews and Eastern Jews, Jews that lived in Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And at the time, like say in the 1700s, Western Jews would have would have looked down on Eastern Jews for a lot of like um, like calling them backwards. They they don't they don't practice the way we do. They're not as liberal as us. Um, 
And, you know, for them to look forward 200 years in the future, to be grouped under the same label, they'd be like, whoa, no, <laughs> don't call us that. Um, we're not the same, we're, we're better. <laughs> um, and, you know, the intersection between Mizrahim and Sephardim, like, it, it depends on who you're talking to. What do you mean um, by Western Jews? Are you talking like Western Germany or like, like, like Western Europe in general? Portugal. Like uh, Germany, France, England, the ones that like pride themselves as like liberal capitalist, you know, free democratic nations. I'm not quite sure I'm understanding. But you, so if, if you're saying that the, 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 the Eastern ones were looked, who were looked down on in Eastern Europe were Ashkenazim. I, I, that's, I think that's correct, but in in that same in that same paradigm, the Western ones uh, being sort of uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, the Netherlands would be Sephardim. Well, so I'm I've like my my understanding of the term Sephardim and Ashkenazim, like Sephardim to me, or the way I've been taught by Professor Bufovich, is that it means basically Iberian Jews, like Jews from Spain and Portugal specifically. Um, but Ashkenazi well, in, in, in the same way that Ashkenazi means German, but the the uh, the term is sort of greatly expanded to cover two sort of schools of practice. Um, there's the Ashkenazi Minhag set of customs and the Sephardi Minhag set of customs, which are followed by um, a, a, a great great number of geographic areas. Um, but like even Africa, for instance, most African Jews tend to be Sephardic, which is nowhere near the Iberian. Um, some of them would not like you to say that. They would say, <laughs> no, they'd say, no, our, our community, the, the Moroccan uh, Minhag is completely distinct. We don't follow the Sephardi. <laughs> well, okay, fine. But there are plenty that would identify. Anyway, so I guess like I, for theologically, I guess the main distinctions would be less like geographic and more, do they follow the Shulchan Aruch as like their main halachic basis, or do they follow the Rima, which was added to the Shulchan Aruch? Um, and Rima would be like Ashkenazi, and Sephardic would just be Shulchan Aruch. Does, does the Rima override, or is it just an addition? It's an addition, and so if you're Sephardic, you don't really recognize it, at least not in like your own personal practice. If you're Ashkenazi, it does sort of override. So Shulchan Aruch, uh, it's, a, it's the, the code of law um, formulated by Rav Yosef Karo. In the Middle East? That's what I about, thought. It's about 1,000 years ago. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. a, it, it's entirely the Sephardic practice. But then the Ramah uh, made a gloss on it, which is basically um, marginal notes, insertions, uh, updating it to match the Ashkenazic practice and republished it. Ashkenazi Jews. And that's basically how like all Jewish law is. You kind of have the Talmud and then you have interpretations and you have commentary and you have this, that, and the other thing. So it's like totally valid, reasonably, within Jewish practice, at least on things where like there are multiple opinions to say, oh, I'm following Hillel's interpretation of this versus somebody else's. And there tend to be majority opinions that kind of pick a side. But there are definitely sects and opinions that you can follow the the um, non-majority opinion, and so like that's kind of how all yeah. Jewish law is: is that it's sort of layered. Yeah, Ashkenazim and Sephardim don't view the other's practice as wrong. In that respect, I think it's similar to Catholicism and the Orthodox Church. 
but it's just that it's it's not appropriate for one person from one community to adopt the other communities because that's disrespectful to their own community. Well, anyway, I think I, I would like to interject and say that there is some serious bad blood theologically and practically between the Catholic and Orthodox churches. So I just just letting you just let me know. <laughs> are they not? Are they not in communion? Oh no 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 no! They they uh they 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 split from each other a thousand else. years ago. <laughs> I'm thinking of something else. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're, you're good. It's one okay. further about misconceptions. Okay, I was just going to say that Zakia, because I think there are there are two of us Jews, and and that's not fair. We're monopolizing the conversation. So. Well, yeah, I was. Uh, I I do thank you for the clarification, though. Um, what basically to move on to something also related to Judaism, what Zakia said safeguarding against assimilation. Um, that is an important point, I think, when it comes to misconceptions about groups coming from outside the community. Um, let's take the example of the Amish. Um, a lot of Americans don't really know that much about the Amish and what they do is just kind of like rumors or like, um, you know, just a hearsay. And the Amish themselves don't really care like what you think of them. They just kind of like keep to themselves for the most part and just like live life. But because of that, a lot of Americans are just like, oh, what's going on over there? Oh, uh, they wear really pointy hats. I guess they're hat lovers, huh? It's just like, the Amish are like, who cares, bro? So it's like, it's, it's because of the insularness of their community that there's, there's no real Amish people going out and be like, hey, I give you all the scoop on Amish people. It's just like, no, they don't care. So because of that, the misconceptions develop because people just, just want to know and gossip about things. I do have a real comment on that. Like, actually, I wanted to sort of talk about this anyway. Um, I guess, like, a major difference between the Amish and Jews, especially, like, Hasidic insular Jews, is, um, the consequence of the misconceptions. So, there really aren't people making the unorthodox equivalent of the Amish people. There aren't people selling out their own community for views, for interests, for a storyline, for things like that. And when you see things like that come out, um, it's, it's very disheartening to us. So there are real consequences. But another thing is, is that their community is so insular and in some respects sort of protected by the fact that they are a Christian sect, there are limited consequences. People might think you're weird, whereas Hasidic Jews in New York are often victims of hate crimes. And so when we have our misconceptions, it's not just as simple as somebody thinking that we're dumb or weird or stupid or whatever, because that would be annoying, but fine in its own right. But you see spikes of anti-Semitism in response to people publicly condemning us. And that's a problem. Um, when people take their misconceptions and respond with violence. And so I feel like that's why it's more of a problem in our community when people make things like unorthodox or spread weird rumors about us via the media or things or have their, those harmful misconceptions because just thinking Jews are weird is fine. I mean, not great, but fine. Wanting to kill us or hunt us down in the streets because of that, not fine. Understandable. Um, I get that. Uh, let's see. I think that was all from you. Isaac, misconceptions about something being partially true, but wrong on too vague a level, that, that is an important point. Um, a lot of times people will make misconceptions about Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, you know, name, name your group. I mean, it was, that's their culture in there either. Um, often what you say will be true 
of some people depending and you know it, it can vary on how large the group of that some people is but usually not all rarely if ever not all and that's where the misconception comes in like um and usually that has bad consequences like you know uh Bilal, uh you mentioned that some people in isis will be like you know if you if you you were muslim and you decided not to be anymore we can kill you and we're not going to go to hell for that you know they consider themselves muslim and they believe that but some other people who are not muslim who don't really understand the intricacies of islam will be like oh all muslims believe that muslims are inherently evil and Bilal will be like oh no no <laughs> so you know that has consequences um so that's that's it's important to point out it's an important point isaac um that's it's also a misconception there's often misconceptions historically within one particular religious community um like for instance christians nowadays um especially catholic christians um from western europe or i should say western and southern europe and Protestant Christians from Northern Europe and in North America. I wouldn't say Eastern Orthodox Christians so much because they are a little more connected to, they're, they're closer geographically to the birthplace of Jesus. So they, they understand more of the historical context, but the other two don't really, they, they view Christianity as kind of like a straight line from Jesus to now, when it was really more like a vibrant conversation that people just like started editing out over the years. And then you are left with like this poultry poultry like little sliver of information when there used to be like you know dozens of people arguing about it like the holy trinity you know christians for hundreds of years in the first years in the first hundred hundreds or so years after jesus was uh after jesus died christians were killing each other over whether the holy trinity was paganism or not um they were they nobody was sure and then suddenly you know a byzantine emperor was like all right guys uh you are disrupting my tax revenue by killing each other and so we're just going to have a, a, a meeting and we're going to decide that the Holy Trinity is kosher, um, to borrow a term from Judaism. Um, so none, nobody killing anybody else. Holy Trinity, good now. Okay, cool, cool. So from that point on, that was like, that was Christian canon. And the only, the only, uh, the only justification for that was just state stability. But now Christian now will be like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's the way it's always been. You know, praise God, Holy Trinity, but it's just like you have to under, really understand that it, it didn't always used to be that way. And you can't use the justification of the way it is now is the way it was when God made it so, because that's not true. So you, you gotta you gotta understand the historical background of your own religion before you start saying things about it. Um and something interesting uh that you were mentioning in response to Rima earlier about the terminology of Israel and Palestine. Um, and Judaism, and Judah, Judea. Um, around the e Egyptian New Kingdom in like 1100 BCE, um, the regions of uh, Judah or Judea are interchangeable, most likely. Um, and uh, what, would, what would later be called Palestine or like Philistia at that moment, they were both regions in the land of Canaan. Like the land of Canaan was like the name that the Canaanites for the most part called themselves and everybody else called them. Um, the, 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 later, the later famous Phoenician, Phoenician, Phoenicians um, would also come from this land and like the, the northern part of it. So like the, the land of Canaan would have stretched from the southern tip of what is now Israel until like, or the Gaza Strip, 
on the northern tip of like Lebanon. So like that entire coast, all Canaanites. Um, in fact, the Phoenicians themselves never called themselves Phoenicians. They probably called themselves either Canaanites or what, from whatever city they came from. The name Phoenician, Phoenician is Greek. Um, the Greeks called them that and it just, the name just stuck and now everybody calls them that. So um, calling people names that didn't come from themselves isn't necessarily alien. Um, and Judah and Philistia or Palestine were both small regions in that larger Canaanite area that, you know, they fought each other, but they were also other regions of other peoples that called themselves differently. But usually when one people rises to dominate other peoples in that area, everybody else just kind of takes on the name of the dominant group. Um, and so, you know, Palestine or Philistia, the land of the Philistines, and Judah or the land of the Jews, or Israel, the land of the Israelites, all of those names were kind of interchangeably used like by a lot of different empires to refer to that area of land. Because when, you know, say the Assyrians, they come to um, the kingdom of Israel, which is like the dominant power in the area at that time, um, you know, but it's not just Israelites. You know, maybe, maybe Israelites make up 15, 20% of the population and the rest, the other 85, 85, 80% are various amalgamations of groups of different Canaanites who have, you know, different cultural heritage and stuff. But the Assyrians encounter the power in the region, Israel. So they're just like, okay, so this, this region is Israel. I mean, they don't really care about all the intricacies. They're just trying to rule a province. So they come into contact with the powerful group in the area and they just call the whole area the name of that group. I mean, that doesn't make that any less valid. I'm just saying that, you know, different empires and different states over history have used those names interchangeably to, review, to, to, to refer to the same area. And the same way the Romans changed the name of their province from Judea to Syria, Palestine, to screw it to the Jews, that's true. But the Romans didn't get that name from nowhere. Like the Romans uh, were occupying that land from uh, the Greeks, or I should say the, the Seleucid Greeks, um, Middle, Middle Eastern influenced Greeks that came from Alexander the Great. Um, so the, the Romans took that name and called it Palestine because it had already been called Palestine as a whole by other groups in the past. They didn't get it from nowhere. So like historically, those names are interchangeable. And it's only now with like the, the political friction between the Palestinian territories and Israel that using one name or the other identifies you as in support of one group and in dehumanization of the other group. But historically, that has not been the case. People who live there could be called Palestinians or Israelites or Canaanites or Jews. And at some point, those were all in the interchangeable. Um, so I just want to caution against like saying that one is like a corruption of the other. Like, for instance, at, when Jesus was born, he was a Jew, but he could also be called a Palestinian. Like he could be a Palestinian Jew, a Jewish Palestinian. Like to the Romans, that would have been the same thing because they would they would have identified the area as both. So, so I, just, I just want to very briefly clarify what I'm saying and also offer a minor historical correction as well. So I, I think it would be equally anachronistic and to my historical sense, almost as offensive to call Jesus an Israeli as a Palestinian. Both are anachronisms. Both of those uh, demonyms come, came much later. Jew or Judean are historically accurate. With regard to uh, the, name, the name from the Philistines, Philistia, that region was much smaller. Um, you, you're, you're, you're right that Judea and Canaan and Israel and Palestine are all roughly the same area, but Philistia was a very small section of Canaan. 
uh, around Gaza, as you mentioned. Um, and by the time that, that Jesus was alive, there had been no Philistines for a good long while. That, that was a his, his historical past thing. Nobody was still referring to the area as Philistia. I mean, that's because so, they had been assimilated culturally into the area, but the area itself could be referred to as Palestine and had been so by several different groups. I'm not saying it's a better name or a more dominant name. I'm saying it's an equally valid name. It's a, it's a geographical term as opposed to the cultural but, but identifier it, they used to be. The, the notion of referring to the entire area of Canaan as Palestine, by the way, including all the way up from Syria, that originated a hundred years after Jesus' death. The I idea would, of if you're referring to the area around Gaza as Philistia, yes, that's, that's historically earlier. But the idea of extending that term uh, to the entire area and more post-dates Jesus by a good hundred years. I, I, think that, I think you might be confusing the official usage of that term by a state entity with that term in common in common di in common in common dialect, um, because the Romans talking about there are, there, are his, there are historical primary sources of like people casually referring to the area that way. I can definitely find them for you. Okay, well, that sounds good, but that's also uh, slightly tangential. So, um, fair enough. Fair enough. We'll, we'll put just put we'll put that in that with like an asterisk note, and then after the meeting we can share references because that's actually you know both tedious and very important. So yeah. Okay, cool. Understandable. Uh, um, I want to quickly touch on what you said below before I, before I finish. Um, the, the point you made uh, about the dehumanizing on earth in practical terms, as opposed to your theological disagreement, I think that's important because a lot of people don't really separate those things. Like for instance, as a Christian or Muslim, you can believe, you know, that somebody is going to hell theologically because they don't agree with you. But at the same time, in everyday life, treat them as a fellow human being and don't 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 treat them any differently than you would a fellow Christian or a fellow Muslim. But you can believe in your own head that, you know, you you've been exposed to what I consider to be the truth and you have refused it. And therefore, my God is going to send you the hell. But I'm not going to treat you any differently on earth because of that fact. I just believe that to be true. Um, and some people don't separate those things. They're just like, my God will send you to hell when you die. And therefore, I don't have to treat you with any respect while you're alive. Um, and that is too common a thing. So I'm glad you brought that up. So now I'll pass it to whoever wants, whoever wants to talk. I'll talk. So, um... Yeah, I guess I feel like that's a really hard distinction, though, to think, like, you're for sure going to hell, but I still have to treat you like a good person. Um, I just, I feel like it's, like, emotionally problematic. I feel like humans aren't that good at feelings. <laughs> um, I know, and I feel like it's sort of this idea that they're subhuman and that there's something inherently wrong with them, and so I feel like that's really difficult and maybe in theory you're right but I feel like humans aren't very good at that and so I do wish that larger theology or like wouldn't condemn people to hell because I feel like that's really difficult um to go through your life treating people like people um and believing that somewhere deep in your soul 
So it's, it's the, here's the thing, right? Like, a person could say, like, how can I fathom an infinite punishment for even, let's say, the worst crime in this life? Let's say a person's, like, you know, a uh, serial killer or worse, like a serial rapist or, you know, like, I, I don't mean to say this lightly. I'm sorry to bring up such a vulgar case, but, like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to bring up the most... Um, of, yeah, exactly. Okay, so, um, you know, it, it, that, at the end of the day, that is a finite uh, action, you know, and some people try to, like, understand, you know, like, they can't wrap their mind around, like, how can there be an infinite punishment for that, and such and such, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, there are things that we couldn't fathom to have possibly have made sense and been correct and be valid uh, 20 years ago, you know, so it's like, so like if there's an all-powerful being and like that we are not even like like the smartest person on earth isn't like a grain of sand to them they're not like not in the cosmos not in like you know how we can see so far out into the galaxy but not like we have a limit to far how we can see and we can see many different galaxies and you know, some such that it's not like a grain of sand like it's not like that would be such a exact you know like, like that is you know not comparable so it's like okay well like Considering that, then it's like, logically speaking, I don't think I have the grounds to say that it's beyond um, what could be correct. I could say that as far as I can understand, it doesn't seem fair, but I can also say that, like, there are tons of things that don't seem right that professionals say that I know that I'm like, all right, I can put my faith in this because they've, they, they're a lot more qualified than me. They're, they're, you know, and that's, that's other humans who, you know, that like, if you study, you could actually catch up to them. Whereas in this case, it's like, the idea is that like, this is beyond us. This is far beyond. Secondly speaking, that's not the, o the, the only view that there is. There, are, there is also the view of um, a cleansative period where it's like, yeah, you did bad things. That's what you get. You get a period of hell. Like you do bad, you, you, you earned it. You earned it, you know. Um, and there's also the view that Wait, you well, if I may interject a bit, but you, are you saying that it's like a temporary hell for like a finite number of sins and then you get sent to heaven? Yeah, that is a that is a, an accepted view in Islam. That is an accepted view. Interesting. Yeah. Um, although, like, you know, if you go to ISIS, that won't be an accepted view. But. Like I said, like, this is actually not like an attack on like Islam. I think all religions definitely have their moments where like that person definitely going to hell. And like... I think in general, I feel like it's really hard for humans who are just so mortal to decide the will of the immortal. And I feel like it actually sort of condemns ourselves in the process because it's really hard to compartmentalize. I definitely understand. I, I definitely understand. But at the same time, like, like, yeah, that's, that's a struggle of being a human. Like, if you if you screw up on that, that's a pretty big deal. You've done something horrible. I get what you're saying. Like, okay, if like scripturally speaking, it's very clear that like, hey man, like, you just cheated on your wife. Um, like if if we had the opportunity, like, like you would be like that. That could warrant the death penalty. If that you know like you know, and additionally, that wouldn't just be like a oh you know it, you know like that happened. It's also a theological and ideological aftermath of that like that was considered a major sin like almost on the on the grounds of um like po polytheism so 
like I get what you're saying. Like you know, you know, it's hard to compartmentalize, but at the same time, it's like, well, that just sucks about being a human. We we that that is a weakness that we have. Like, Eric says a funny joke and he dressed nice that day. I might treat him more more with respect and humanity. I would hope so. Person. <laughs> dresses like a bum and he smells bad. That's been pretty yeah. funny. And it's, that's a real that's a that's a real thing. Like you know, yeah, we suck at that. Like like we financially speaking, we now because we don't compartmentalize, we see this person as less human because they have a lower fashion or lower hygiene, and it might not even be in their hands, right? Like who knows? Like you know, yeah. there's a surprisingly number of clean shaven homeless people I've seen in my neighborhood. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, I just feel like it's difficult when like an institution that claims to have like a direct line with God in some way is universally making these laws and ideas about how we have to view other people. Whereas like, instead of, you know, I just, I find that difficult. Um, but like I guess kind of speaking away from in terms that. of logic, like, do you believe that that's logically inconsistent or do you believe that it's emotionally very hard to accept? It's emotionally hard to accept, and I believe, like, logically, it's not our place to even do that. You can also say that it's... Wait, lo logically, it's not our place is a, is a personal value. Okay, fine. You might also say that it's, um, it, it can be dangerous, given historical precedent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. Like, has it been weaponized before? Absolutely. <laughs> who, 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 like, if we ask this question, like, has there ever been something that could be weaponized that wasn't weaponized? If yes, don't worry, it will be weaponized soon. Like, <laughs> uh, koalas. Um, prove it. Sooner or later, we'll, there'll be some sort of saying that, like, you're an indecent human because you don't care about the extinction of this animal. But that's and as true. a result. Yeah, and as a result, you, you truly are a corrupt and wicked person, and we should eat you as the underclass. I'm not even joking. That is I a mean, very realistic view on things. I mean... <laughs> no, 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 koalas are worthless animals. They are... They, they, they poison themselves. They literally fill their brains with neurotoxins. All right, all right, folks. They're dumb enough to not be dangerous. <laughs> the folks at home, uh, Bilal has been outed as a sociopath. Uh, we all know that now. Thank you, Bilal, for, for outing <laughs> <laughs> so I actually wanted to like kind of take a hard left turn here. Um, I, so in my personal life, I've been thinking a lot about um, when I get married, I'm going to cover my hair. And so this has been like a topic that I've been sort of seeking out a lot more. And I know this is a pretty hard left turn, but I promise I'm going to bring it back. Um, and it sort of made me think about different conceptions from the outside of our community versus the inside of the community and how the same outsiders will perceive different communities with similar laws. And so I'm, I guess like I'm personally having a lot of trouble with the idea that what I, what I find anecdot like anecdotally is that there are a lot of people who will say that Muslim women are not oppressed if they want to wear hijab. They're empowered, they're beautiful, they're women, whatever. And I, I agree with that, totally. But on the same side, the same people or the same group of people, the same outsiders to both religions will in turn say that Jewish women are inherently oppressed um, 
because we want to wear a shaitol, a wig, or a techel, a scarf. And so I find that like really difficult, like as far as like inside outside perceptions. And there are definitely women who probably are oppressed and probably are pressured into it in probably both communities. But I wouldn't say that that's by far the majority. And so we kind of have this interplay of like, there maybe are some people who feel like that. So you can't really quite call it a misconception. But on the other hand, I feel like that's definitely not the majority. And I feel like um, part of what contributes to that is actually Jews. I feel like more liberal or Jews that have left the more insular orthodoxy will monetize their experiences by sharing their oppression or ideas of oppression. And so I feel like there is sort of an outside, inside interplay kind of within our own community where you could be an Orthodox Jew and call that the inside, and you can be a Reformed Jew and that could be its own outside, but you fall under this Jewish umbrella. So you're sort of given this, um, guise of being a Jew, guise of being an insider. And so I don't really see that in the Muslim community. And so I don't, I don't really have anything brilliant to say about it or how to fix it or anything, but I just, that's something that I've really noticed um, within my own community that I find really troublesome. And then, because we're obviously not gonna let it go, so I might as well say what I'm gonna say. Um, if somebody were to write a bibliography about me or something like that, it would be pretty weird if they said I was from Michigami, which is like the Native American word for Michigan. So like while it might have been valid like 100, 200 years ago, it'd be kind of weird to call me that now. And even if we went back to like some sort of like Michigami. Yes, there will be a time and place for this. There's references coming soon at the end of the meeting. We have limited time. Okay, okay, okay. I'm ready for the references. I just feel like they have to be time appropriate. They actually have to be from 1 to 30 CE, because, like, you could totally find sure. references. Yeah. Okay, okay, I'm done. Uh, I don't know if anybody else wants to talk, but... Well, I mean, um, go ahead, Raymond. For clarification with the whole... Catholics hate, hate or Orthodox and vice versa. That hasn't been true for a long Like I know at least back home in the Middle East, we can go to Orthodox church and they can go to ours. My cousin, my first cousins are Orthodox. My aunt married um, an Orthodox man and her kids are Orthodox, but it doesn't mean they're like there's a hatred or anything. I would just like to clarify that. And then with the concept of the Eastern Church and Western Church, Western typically being um, Catholicism, we technically, usually as we think of Catholicism, we think of the Roman Catholic rite, but there are 23 other Eastern rites of Catholicism that aren't acknowledged at all. Ever. And to think there's just like one combined universal thought like, yes, this is true, and you can't question it. That's not necessarily true. It's more diverse. You don't, we all think of the Roman Catholic Church because, yes, 
Western Europe and American, but um, America, sorry, let me clarify that. But we tend to fail to acknowledge the experiences of other like groups. We tend to generalize, I feel, in thought of just generalize, we view it as a Western religion when a lot of minorities across the world, world practice them. And the fact that we people think, yes, we only follow the hierarchy. Of course, we follow, at least the Catholic Church follows the Pope. That's not a question. But there are different thoughts in everything. So just wanted to point that out. I just want to clarify something. Um, in terms of people falling in love and relationships, um, there are t tons of times when people with uh, who identify with an ideology that is diametrically opposed to another ideology or like just like like both of them cannot be both following the their uh, scripture and um, still get married. But the case Rima is referring to is is not breaking any rules like that. Like it is canonically permitted for yes. Orthodox and Catholic to be married. Like yes. yeah. Just to be clear, just clarify in case anyone was thinking that like, oh, this is just a romantic story. No, like it's legit. It's like it's like allowed to, yeah. No. And what, what, a I lot of to ask, what I wanted to ask, what I wanted to ask was, is is it official doctrine for both or either that the other side is a legitimate and correct and true path as well? I believe so. Yes, I believe the differences are in questions with the sacraments. I I need to double check this. But with the, at least the Orthodox Church, from what I know, they do baptism, communion, and confirmation all at the same time. We Catholics usually do it, um, baptism when you're a baby, um, communion around second grade, and then um, when you're older, they'll do confirmation depending on your age. But otherwise, yes. That might have had to do with the idea of like limbo in Catholicism, which might not have ever been a thing in the orthodoxy. I know like one other difference is like their calculation of like when the holidays are. So if there's Orthodox Easter, which is later. Um, yes. I think it's really interesting though, because the Orthodox Church is like probably a lot closer to original source because the New Testament was written in Greek. And I know that the King James Bible was sort of inherently problematic with translation. So I just, I think that's a really interesting interplay. I don't like, I don't, yeah. Yeah. I would like to just mention, I feel, I feel like more of the Eastern rites are closer to, like you said, the Orthodox, which are like closer to the original text. Like there's, because like the traditions, the way we do mass, like I know for Maronite, at least we, um, we do the um, parts of the mass in Aramaic and just like I feel traditionally wise, we're more, at least the Eastern rites are more similar to orthodoxy, if that makes sense. I would also like to clarify, and I have partaken in a misconception myself. Um, I often forget about the uh, many Eastern rites of the Catholic church in um, what is now called the Middle East and also the several uh, different uh, unique Orthodox churches um, in the area of the world in general, as in like the Coptic Orthodox Church, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, etc. Um, but like the, the Orthodox churches that are mainly represented in Europe, which are like the, the descendants of the Byzantine church, 
um, the Greek Orthodox Church, Serbian, Russian, um, etc. They have a lot of bad blood between the the Roman Catholic Church that's headquartered in Rome, and that is like you know very prevalent in Austria, Germany, or not Germany, uh, Austria, France, Italy, and Spain and Portugal. But you know Catholics and Orthodox, you know live you know side by side pretty cool in the middle east itself but in europe funny enough um where the religion spread to um they don't like each other very much because um of the great schism in the in the, in the 10 hundreds where basically uh the original orthodox patriarch in constantinople so was supposed to have um authority over the the bishop in rome but the bishop in rome declared that they had actual authority and they split from each other and like they like sent like insults to each other and that's that's why we have the traditional split between the two so in the middle east you know what you said is true like as you were talking about misconceptions are true of some and not of all um but in europe there's like a lot of bad blood between the groups that identify as either but your point is taken and uh, that was a misconception that i uh i played into in this conversation so um bring that full circle I did want to pose a question towards Rima. Um, so, and the question is so that you can comment to Zakia. Um, Zakia mentioned that she she be believes that Jewish women who uh, wear head covering may be seen as oppressed, and she also, or something to this um, sort, and she also expressed that you know she can wrap her head around the idea that like muslims or muslim women more particularly also um may face the same criticisms or you know people thinking these things outside and some are you know she and she clarified that like yeah in some cases it's valid some cases it's not um but oddly i didn't she said that and i was wondering who is this people who thought that jewish people jewish women are oppressed and she did clarify that, like, in some cases, it's Jewish people. Um, but outside of that, I, I'd never, that never occurred to me. Like, the idea of women, uh, Jewish women covering their, like, I've always viewed Jewish women covering their head as, um, do, I, I always felt that it was a little bit more liberal as a religion um, in that regard. And as a result, um, like, it was, it would be viewed somewhat like nuns, where it's like, yeah, that's cool. Like, that's that's fine. Not in the sense that like, oh, they're gonna be dedicating their lives like nuns, but in the sense that like, nobody nobody bats an eye when they see a nun. Nobody thinks like, oh, that poor nun. Or as far as I've ever met. Um, that's really interesting. So I, I guess like I guess the context I was trying to speak from is somebody who is going to be covering their hair soon, and so mm. I pay attention to women who are more open about wearing a shade tail. I feel like some of the reasons that it might not be so obvious is that not very, it, not everybody knows that we wear wigs and not every Jewish woman does wear wigs. So I feel like it's a little bit more private. Oh, whereas no. a hijab, you can't have a hijab. <laughs> We've known this whole time. No, but go ahead, David. Um, no, sometimes I have it. I'm like, mm, is that a wig or is that her hair? And I kind of do the thing. <laughs> um, you know, but I, so when I'm on like people's Instagram pages or Facebook or whatever that promote shaital wearing um, within their own community or are shaital machers, or they 
sell shaytuls or tichuls or they wrap their hair or whatever. And I'm sort of like kind of involved in all of these like sort of online communities. You do see it a lot like in the comments and things like that of like, oh, you're oppressed. Why are you doing this? This is inherently, you have internalized misogyny. Those are online communities. Those are online communities. Now you got to consider that might be very selective in what you're reading. That's why I want Rima to comment on, does she think, like, has she, what has she felt about Muslim hijabs or seen in her communities? Because I feel like that would, I feel like the fact that I wouldn't see it that way, and if, if Rima also ends up seeing something similar, then you might, you might, it might be your circles that are giving you that idea as opposed to, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strange way of me to make this logical point of logic because it's like, you're, I'm saying you're looking at anecdotes and I'll prove it by showing you other anecdotes. That show that exists. So, Rima, could you please comment part, part on Part of this is about the, the big TV series Unorthodox, right? Hmm? Is it part, part, of, part of what you're talking about, that the societal idea of Jewish women being oppressed, comes from a recent TV series called Unorthodox, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, about? in like a super specific content context but like also I just kind of see it in general but I feel like unorthodox did was it made more people aware that if you're looking at an orthodox Jewish woman and she's obviously married she's probably wearing a wig if you can't tell I feel like that's sort of what kind of like reignited um this like conversation if you will um I was gonna say something else but I've lost it so ADHD is a pillar bro so <laughs> Primarily in my experience, again, I can't speak for everyone, but at least within the Middle Eastern community, it's not just, we don't look upon, like down upon anyone who wears a head covering. My, my grandma, I was going to say that that's the Arabic word for grandma. My grandma used to wear one all the time. So at least within that community, I've never seen it as a problem. Like hijabis, they're fine. It's all the same, like um, Zakia, I believe you mentioned nuns. Yes, that's fine. No one's looking down upon anyone. We're fine with the hijab. We're just fine with head coverings, at least in that situation. For us, it's more of a personal choice. If you want to, I know specifically with the Orthodox community, I think this is just a general rule for Orthodox Christianity. For women in their church have to wear a veil, at least. They're it has to be covered. But I guess outside, based on my experience with, like as in America, I guess maybe they would look down upon it more because they're like, oh, she has to follow these rules. But at least my experience as a Middle Eastern person, I've never seen a problem with it. And I feel like that does make a really big difference because I feel like inherent feminism and self-realization and sexual liberation within the American context tends to be revolved about around uh, women expressing their sexuality and being less covered, not more covered. And so sort of it's very un-American to say I'm actually empowered by covering myself. Um, and I feel like that's very strongly juxtaposed in a way that it's not within Middle Eastern communities. But actually, I remember what I was going to say. I feel like 
some of the misunderstanding and some of the, the hate kind of comes from a misunderstanding as to why we cover our hair. I feel like there are a lot of people who are very critical of the wigs um, because they don't understand why it's any different than wearing your own hair or why it's more modest or anything else. And I feel like there are a lot of people who think that our hair is inherently linked to our sexuality and therefore if you don't have enough hair or blah 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 you're not pretty and I feel like it almost causes people to be on the defensive um when they encounter like a shaitel or or a hijab and so I feel like you kind of have these like two competing values of people who are like well, there's nothing wrong with my hair. I don't know why you sexualize hair of all things. I don't get why you're doing this. Um, this is weird. And um, also then there's this like inherently, like I don't understand how your feminism, your female liberation could be so diametrically opposed to my idea of female liberation and um, sexual advocacy I guess. I totally agree with that too. So if, unless anybody's got some final comments I believe that we're going to wrap it up because as usual we've talked longer than we intended. <laughs> Indeed as usual. Um, all right well thank you Runa for introducing this topic. Um, heated discussion in, in confines of, you know, context is, is good. You know, iron sharpens iron. Um, so, uh, uh, this has been the discourse. If you enjoyed this discussion, please subscribe to the discourse on YouTube, Spotify, or iTunes. And as always, please join the conversation at thediscourse2020.medium.com. Thank you for joining us on The Discourse.